0: The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 183. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media buttons at the top of my webpage, and that webpage is Brian McClanahan, B R I O N, McClanahan.com. Go there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook, read by yours truly. You'll get an email from me about once or twice a week. Also, while you're there, you can help the Brian McClanahan show by throwing a few pennies my way. Go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, but you do have some courses there to purchase. There are five of them, all top-notch college-level courses, some shorter than others. Uh, But uh, my last two courses, the one on the war and the one on the Constitution, are full-length college-level courses. So you're going to want to pick those up. They make great gifts but again, always free to enroll, so go ahead and enroll. The people that do enroll in McClanahan Academy get the best deals when new courses come out. So you're going to want to do that anyways. And uh, you will help support the Brian McClanahan Show that way. And don't forget to get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com. Just do a search for my name. You get all my uh, you get my logo and all the kinds of stuff that I've allowed it to be on, and it's a lot of great stuff there. So go to redbubble.com, put in my name, and you'll find all of my merchandise And also, last but not least, please review this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you listen to this podcast. Please review it and rate it because the more reviews and ratings, the better it does and the more people hear it. So I'm going to want you, or please do that, and then share it around on social media and help spread the word. That's the way the podcast will grow and we'll get a bigger audience and more people will be thinking locally, acting locally. And that's what we want to do. All right. Well, this is. Uh, I had to do this podcast, and I wish I'd done it yesterday, but uh, I was pressed for time on some other things because, as we know, move, news moves fast uh, currently, and so um, it seems like something that comes out in the news is gone within two days. So, of course, the topic today is going to be the Fourteenth Amendment, which was a huge discussion on social media uh, the last couple of days. And I want to address this in in four parts. And, of course, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you haven't been paying attention to social media, a couple of days ago on Tuesday, Tuesday morning, in fact, after I published the last podcast, the the left-wing news reporting group Axios did an interview with Donald Trump. And they released a clip of that where Donald Trump is, on camera saying that he's going to use an executive order to end birthright citizenship in the United States. And, of course, the progressives went absolutely ballistic. Not just the progressives, but some of the, uh, all kinds of groups. I mean, the quote-unquote conservatives went ballistic. A lot of people were very upset about this because how dare Donald Trump say anything that's like that when the Constitution, they said, clearly points to the fact that he can't do this that birthright citizenship is codified in the Constitution, the Supreme Court has ruled on this, it's set in stone. How dare Trump go out and do this? So I'm going to address this issue from four different points because I think there are four things going on here, and it's really amazing. The The, the vitriol, the reaction, was absolutely amazing to watch. First of all, the progressives that have never been strict constructionists all of a sudden became strict construct actually they weren't strict constructionists what they were were textualists and it's important and i and i and i designate those two. you have originalism and you, i have differentiate those things you have originalism and then you have textualism they're two different things textualism allows you to interpret the text the way you see fit based on your interpretation of the language itself so textualism is not originalism and it should not be confused with that Originalism goes back, and you look at what the people that wrote the amendment, how the ratifiers viewed the amendment, um, or the Constitution itself, that's originalism, not textualism. And so we have to be clear on these two things. They're two different things, and without understanding that, it's very easy to fall into the textualism trap. Well, I'm a textualist. I'm going to read what the the Constitution says, what it says. Well, that's true. Um, but it says what it says because the people that ratified it and wrote it defined what it said. So that's you have to get into that. It can't just be, this is what the words say, because the words today could have a completely different meaning than they did 150 years ago. And so it's important to understand that. But the progressives became textualists, at least more open textualists, because I think they've always been textualists in a way. Uh, they just think that, you know, necessary and proper, for example, means you can do anything you want to do. Or commerce means any type of economic activity anywhere, anytime, any place in the United States, that they can regulate that and do whatever they want with it. Um, so they are they are constitutionalists in that they're textualists. And that's that's the important designation to make, and also differentiation between originalists and textualists. Textualists open the door to a elastic or loose interpretation of the Constitution it always works out that way so um, you have to understand that and of course one of the uh, one of the classes that I have at McClanahan Academy is my newest it's American constitutions and I get into some of this stuff and I'm actually going to refer back to that a few times in this presentation if you have not picked up that class yet, you need to pick up that class it's 40 lectures and uh, it's, I, I, go through, I actually go through the 14th Amendment, not in the way I'm going to do it today, but I do discuss the 14th Amendment, and I discuss interpretation of the 14th Amendment, and I discuss one part of the interpretation of the 14th Amendment that's so important, that's incorporation. I do a lot with that. But today I'm going to talk about the 14th Amendment when it comes to immigration. And I actually, in that course, bring up Wong Kim Ark, which is the case that everyone cites when they say, well, you know, gee, the Supreme Court's already ruled on this. It's ruled. Now, I I wonder if these same progressives would have said uh in 1896, or if they would have said in 1940, Supreme Court's already ruled, it had Plessy v. Ferguson, it's already ruled. You see, it's convenient when the decision is is made that they like, that they Supreme Supreme Court's already ruled. Supreme Court's already ruled. You can't you can't change that. But if they don't like the decision, then the Supreme Court hasn't ruled yet. In fact, one of the statements was made, we've never defined part of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court has defined part of the 14th Amendment. So did the individuals who wrote it. They defined it, and there was a lot of discussion about it and what they said it meant. So, it's important to understand the 14th Amendment. But before we get into that, I want to talk about Donald Trump for a second. Now, there's been an interview with David Chappelle and Jon Stewart, two lefty comedians, or Dave Chappelle, and they were talking about Trump, and John Stewart essentially has said, and this is amazing, because I was, and I just saw this when I was going to do this, and uh, this is just now circulating, and, and it's something that I think um, is important to know, but he came out and said uh, that Donald Trump has transformed the White House. I tend to agree, in a way, and I think that the amazing thing about Trump And this is the first point with four parts I want to make. The amazing thing about Trump is within one day, he changed the entire focus of discussion in America from pipe bombs and mass murderers to the 14th Amendment, to immigration, by making one statement on one silly interview. No one's talking about pipe bombs and mass murderers anymore. Everyone started talking about the 14th Amendment, and now the attention's turned to immigration and the border, and everyone's focus back on the election. No one's talking about these things that happened over the weekend, which of course I addressed one of them uh, on Tuesday of this week in the last episode of the Brian McClanahan show. And in fact, that episode works well with what I'm going to talk about here in, in a few minutes. So no one is talking about the things that everyone was had a laser beam focus on for about two days. And it seems like two minutes. Because it's gone. It's really gone out of the news cycle. Um, Trump is the most transformative American political figure of the early 21st century. And I firmly believe that 100 years from now, he will be the most studied figure in the early 21st century. Not Barack Obama. The only reason Barack Obama, anyone's going to focus on Obama? Um, Well, there would be two reasons. One, because of his race. The other is, I think in some ways, uh, Obama did help define the language of the early 21st century and the reaction to that, which produced Trump. But Trump has been able to use the media in ways that nobody else ever has. I mean, you might make a case that uh, when you look at the first use of the media by the presidency, William McKinley was the first one that really use the press corps, and then you've had other presidents who have been able to uh, use the media uh, to their advantage. But Trump does it in a way. He uses uses the media to his advantage in a combative way, and he exposes all of their biases, which is amazing. No one else has been able to do that like Donald Trump. And no one else has been able to change the direction of the discourse in America on a dime like Donald Trump has. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing. And so, this is why I say Trump will be the most studied man in the executive office of the early 21st century. And I think people will learn from this. I, I do think that from here on out, people are going to learn how Trump is using the media. They're going to learn how to manipulate the media, even though I think Trump control better than anybody else. I don't think anybody can do it like Trump can. But they're... They're going to learn from this and they're going to look at the media differently. Uh, there's the, this, the idea that the media can somehow be friendly and that we have to, particularly people on the right or libertarians, that you have to somehow be kind to the media because they can destroy you. Absolutely not anymore. There's too many other avenues out there. And Trump uses Twitter in a way that is amazing. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing. So Trump is transformative. He has transformed the executive office and in a way that um, I don't think anybody saw coming. So that's point number one. He's changed the discourse in one phrase on one interview. Everyone everyone went ballistic. They dropped what they were talking about before. And now they're focused on immigration and the 14th Amendment again. The 14th Amendment. I mean, they're, they're focused on this. Uh, now, that's the first part. Now, the second part is he says he's going to issue an executive order to end birthright citizenship in America. Now, can the president actually do this? And here's where I would tend to agree with the progressives and even the Wall Street Journal and some of the, so, quote-unquote, conservatives, the establishment conservatives. um, Even, uh, you know, people that I think have written some good pieces on this. Daniel McCarthy has come out and said, no, he can't. And I would agree. The president cannot end birthright citizenship through an executive order. Um, I wrote a whole book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, about executive overreach, and that would be executive overreach. So I think that uh, Trump saying he could do it, now of course he's got legal counsel, and telling him he can, but that, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant because uh, legal counsel will tell you all kinds of things, even if you can or can't do something. Uh, and McCarthy... Re- responded to this and I, at National Review, and I hate to keep citing National Review, but McCarthy's written a couple of very good pieces on this. And he said, look, it w- the, the courts would issue an injunction immediately. It wouldn't do anything. The Congress has to do something here. And so Lindsey Graham coming out and saying, I'm going to introduce legislation to do this is important. Now, if the Democrats take the House of Representatives, you'll never see any legislation like this at all that will make it through the, the Congress. And I'm not even sure if all Republicans would support it because they don't understand the 14th Amendment. And they don't understand the clause in the 14th Amendment that supposedly opens the door to birthright citizenship. And I think the Supreme Court got this wrong. In fact, there were two judges on the Supreme Court at the time, two dissenters, even in that case of Juan Kim Ark, where uh, they point out they got it wrong. In a way. And, and I'll get into that. Okay, So... Uh, Trump cannot issue an executive order to do this. Uh, this would have to go through a different kind of process. Now, I understand why Trump wants to do it, because he realizes that the Congress probably won't back his move. I realize why Americans want Trump to do it, because, again, the Congress won't back his move. But we don't want a situation where where we can rule with a phone and a pen, as Barack Obama said. This is not something we want to do. We don't want that kind of executive government. I know Americans think they want it, but they don't want it when their guy's not in office. We saw that very clearly when Barack Obama was in office, and people were throwing a fit all the time about what Barack Obama was doing. So we don't want to be them. We want something else, and that's why in in my Nine Presidents book I brought up we should have some amendments to the Constitution which would limit executive power, which would limit the president's ability to do this. We don't need an elected king. The founding generation was not interested in that, and ruling by executive order is having an elected king. This move would be completely unconstitutional. So I I address executive orders in that book. Um, I don't think there's any way the president can do this and birthright citizenship through an executive order. Now you could say, well, yeah, but his job is to execute the laws and to interpret how, his job is not to interpret how Congress. Uh, what Congress does when they pass a law, his job is to execute the laws of Congress and not to issue executive orders and signing statements and other things saying that he's going to interpret the law this way and this is how he's going to execute that law. No, the Congress is there to do that. Now, Congress has punted its responsibility over and over and over again (laughs) since the 19th century, but still, it's their job to craft legislation, write legislation, and then... The president is there to execute that legislation. Now, if the law is unconstitutional, that's another story. Um, so, and the president can refuse to enforce unconstitutional legislation. I think that's that's something that's an, an available option. But, I mean, if the president wants to go that track, well, this is unconstitutional. Well, then you'd have to defend it in some way. Uh, so, there's there's a whole legal question here. I don't think the president can do this through executive order. Plus, he's not. I mean, th- the funny thing about it, you had the Wall Street Journal come out and say, executive order, unconstitutional. President's executive order is unconstitutional. What executive order? He hasn't even issued one yet. This is, again, how Trump is able to troll the media in a way that nobody else has. I mean, it's amazing. The Wall Street Journal yesterday, on Wednesday, wrote, a, uh, wrote an editorial from the editorial board. Trump's executive order is unconstitutional. What executive order? He hasn't even issued one yet. I mean, he's changed the entire narrative, the entire discourse, without even doing anything. Again, this is why Trump is transformative. Everyone reacts. They react very quickly and swiftly and hysterically at times to what Trump does. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. All right, so that said, let's talk about the 14th Amendment, though, because this is where the debate really gets the heart of the debate. Uh, can is birthright citizenship constitutional under the 14th Amendment? And I'm going to get into a couple of arguments here that I've seen on this particular issue. So, first and foremost, when you look at the 14th Amendment, there's the, there's the citizenship clause, and, of course, I'm not going to... I mean, the citizenship clause says that all persons born in the United States, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States. And I'm paraphrasing, but that phrase, subject to the jurisdiction thereof, is very important. So all persons born or naturalized in the United States, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States. And when this first happened, I put out a tweet, and I said, well, look, everyone misses that. And within about, I don't know, an hour or two, that became part of the narrative. Well, the subject to the jurisdiction. Now, this was also a case back in 2015, because Trump had made this an issue back in 2015, 2000. I mean, when he was when he was running for president, uh, this has be this has been an issue several times. But that that cl- that qualifying subject to the jurisdiction thereof is very important. And Laura Ingram on Twitter said, "No, no Supreme Court decision has ever defined that." Well, it has. In fact, it was defined in 1873. Now. Not just that, the people who wrote it defined it. Now, one person responded that my logic is tortured because I use the text of the actual amendment to say that that's the qualifying phrase, and um, so somehow, because I was citing the actual language of the amendment, that's tortured logic, when saying that you have to be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States to be considered a citizen of the United States if you're born here. And you're not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, then you're still not a citizen of the United States. So, how is someone subject to the jurisdiction of the United States becomes the key question. Is someone who is a tourist of the United States, they come through the United States, they're here for a week, and somehow, and they have a child. Is that child now a citizen of the United States? They've traveled here from England. We'll just use a European country. They traveled here from England. There, and uh, all of a sudden they have and they don't think they're going to have the child, but they traveled here and there's a there's a, an accident or there's some type of you know problem complication and they have the child here, no, never intending to be a citizen of the United States. They're an English citizen. They don't they don't want to be here. But yet is that child now a citizen of the United States? Well, clearly no. They're still subject to British law. Now, you could say, well, but they're subject to the United States because they're on U.S. soil. And if they break the law in the United States, they're subject to the United States. Well, this gets into the issue of uh, what laws are constitutional in the United States when it comes to criminal law from the United States general government. And I went into this on Tuesday. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, so there are actually only four. Areas in the Constitution that allow the general government to pass criminal law. And they are, again, as I listed on Tuesday treason, counterfeiting, piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and offenses against the laws of nations. Thomas Jefferson clearly said in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions is the only four things Congress can punish. Four things. And those four things can. Happen if you're a foreign national? You can commit treason if you're well, sort of, levying war against the United States. If you're a citizen of the United States, it's I mean that that would be more treason. So that's more dealing with a citizen. But counterfeiting, you can be a foreign national and do that. You can be a pirate <laughs> if you're a foreign national, and of course, offenses against the law of nations. So you can be a foreign national and do that. So those are the only four things Congress can punish. Yet we've got over we've got hundreds of thousands of federal statutes that set criminal law that are unconstitutional, right? This is where, when you say, well, if you come in the United States and you break the law, you're certainly going to be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. No, you're subject to the jurisdiction of the state in which you broke the law. Because you see, laws, the entire court system, the entire legal system was designed, the internal police, that means if you come in and you have a speeding ticket, you didn't break a federal law. You didn't break a federal law at all. You broke a state law. That's not jurisdiction of the United States. It's jurisdiction of the state in which you're in. So that would not be a federal crime. It'd be a state crime. If you murder someone, that's still a state crime. It's not a federal crime. So this is important because that subject to the jurisdiction is qualified by the fact that we don't understand real federalism. This is what the uh, Wall Street Journal is saying. Well, I mean, it's subject to jurisdiction. Here's your jurisdiction here in the even somebody said, "Well, even breaking uh, the, the even breaking the law by coming here illegally, you're you're saying you're subject to the jurisdiction of the United States." Again, we can get into this idea of who can control that, whether it's the general government or the state governments. So I've already done a podcast on that, an episode on that, so I don't want to I don't want to rehash that. But subject to the jurisdiction is important, um, and the men who the the author of this particular calls Jacob Jacob Howard of, of Michigan clearly said this did not apply to foreigners, aliens who are subject to a foreign power. Now, you could say you could very narrowly interpret that and say, well, he was talking about ambassadors and consuls. And that's true, he was talking about that. But the the way that he said it also would imply that he was talking about other foreigners, people who had not renounced their allegiance to another power. And when you look at this caravan, for example, coming in the United States and they're carrying the flag of Guatemala and they're carrying the flag of Honduras or they're coming in the United States and they're carrying the flag of whatever nationality they're from, whatever country they're from. They're not renouncing their nationality. They're not here to assimilate. They're here to be here to get whatever goods and services they can and many times to have a job or whatever the case may be. If They come in legally. Well, no one blinks an eye at that. OK, you came in legally, you got a green card, you got you got a work, visa. you got whatever it is. You're here legally. You have a child. All right. You want to be here. You're trying to become a citizen. Okay, well, that's a different story than someone who just marches here and says we're just going to be here, uh, and we're going to have children here. And the whole the whole point is, of course, the the quote unquote anchor baby. So, um, wh- how does this work? Are those is are these people subject to the jurisdiction of the United States if they don't intend to become citizens of the United States and they just want to reside here? Or if they haven't followed the proper procedures for coming into the United States, are they subject to the jurisdiction thereof? Um, and when they don't renounce their allegiance, I mean, the, the authors of that, of that clause were clear. If they didn't renounce their allegiance. They're still foreign nationals and still should be treated as such. And if they're foreign nationals, do even if they're on a green card, you can make a case that they don't, children are still not citizens of the United States that have to go through a naturalization process if they wanted to be U.S. citizens. This goes back also, when you look at the 16 election, you look at some of the candidates. candidates, um, And I'll get into Juan Kim Mark, because there was actually a discussion about this. Marco Rubio theoretically could not, if if you look at the natural born citizen clause, Marco Rubio was not eligible to be president, nor is Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, born in Canada, perhaps to an American mother, but maybe she had already renounced her citizenship. His father was Cuban. Uh, Marco Rubio, neither one of his parents were American citizens when he was born. So is he even eligible to be president? Um, this, these are these are important questions, and it gets back to this particular issue. So you've got that, you've got this idea of subject to the jurisdiction and what it meant, and the Supreme Court did rule on this, and they ruled on it in the Slaughterhouse Cases. Now nobody likes to cite the Slaughterhouse Cases because they say that's those cases are, are terrible. <clears throat> those that decision was terrible from the Supreme Court, 1873, and I cited this in a tweet. From Laura Ingram, and of course, one uh, Twitter legal scholar, because you have a lot of those, said, "Oh, that you you don't know anything that you're talking about. The, the slaughterhouse case has never said uh, that anything about that subject to jurisdiction." Well, it did. In fact, I'm going to read you from the case, uh, from the from the uh, majority opinion in this case, and it says, "It, it they cite." All persons born and naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction there are of a citizen of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. This is from from the majority opinion. It says, quote, The first observation we have to make on this clause is that it puts at rest both the questions which we have stated to have been the subject of differences of opinion. It declares that persons may be citizens of the United States without regard to their citizenship of a particular state. And it overturns the Dred Scott decision by making all persons born within the United States and subject to its jurisdiction, citizens of the United States. That its main purpose was to establish a citizenship of the Negro can omit no doubt. The phrase, subject to the jurisdiction, was intended to exclude from its operation children of ministers, consuls, and citizens or subjects of foreign states born within the United States. That's coming from the Supreme Court in 1873. And of course, that Supreme Court was comprised of eight individuals appointed by either Lincoln or Grant. There was one appointee from the James Buchanan administration. One. But eight from Lincoln or Grant. And um, the majority opinion written by Justice Miller was uh, a Lincoln appointee. So these are not Democrats it would say, well, are, well, the Democrats, you know, the, the racist Democrats wrote that. Racist Democrats of the 19th century. These were these were Republicans who were familiar with the arguments made in the Congress in the 1860s, where the Civil Rights Act of 1866 produced the 14th Amendment. They were aware of the arguments that were being made. Now, this was a five-to-four decision. You could say, well, that one racist Democrat, he took he tipped the balance in favor of the of the majority. Regardless, they did rule on what that subject to the jurisdiction meant. And so when you say this they've never the Supreme Court's never ruled on what that means. Yes, it has. 1873. 1872, 73. I mean they have slaughterhouse cases. There it is. Quoted right from the decision. <laughs> right from the majority opinion. There you go. So this has been hashed out by the Supreme Court. And then you get to Wong Kim Arc, 1898. And this is an interesting decision because of course it established, supposedly, the idea that anyone born here is a citizen of the United States and it had to do with Chinese citizens. There were two dissenting opinions in that particular case. And anytime you have the conservatives rule on a particular case, the the, the if it's a conservative court, quote unquote conservative court, the, the progressives will, will oh, but we got the dissenting opinion. We this is what it says. These people are right and these people are wrong. And we're gonna we're gonna use that dissenting opinion. So well, let's look at the dissenting opinion that won Kim Ark case. There were two dissenters, the Chief Justice Melville Fuller and uh, John Marshall Harlan. Now, Harlan was actually nominated by Rutherford B. Hayes. He's from Kentucky. Um, and um, Harlan was, uh, it was, it was argued that, um, you know, he's, he's uh, this kind of a, a doe face He's from Kentucky. He's a doe face. He, he, he supported the Union, but he was against the Emancipation Proclamation. He supported slavery, so, theoretically. Um, but when Grant was elected president, he switched his views, became much more interested in civil rights. Um, he actually dissented in the Plessy v. Ferguson case. He did not support it. He, he dissented in the civil rights cases when those were struck down. Um, so he was known as the great dissenter. Okay, so this is not a guy that is someone you can say, well, that guy's just a racist. He, he he dissented in Plessy v. Ferguson. He dissented in the civil rights cases when those two things, Plessy v. Ferguson, of course, codified separate but equal. Civil rights cases were struck down. So Harlan is an interesting guy. Now, Fuller was appointed by Grover Cleveland, much more conservative, Um, he, uh, he was, was, in the, was in the majority in the Plessy v. Ferguson case. Uh, he struck down the uh, income tax and the Wilson-Gorman tariff. Um, he wrote the opinion in United States v. E.C. Knight, which gutted the Sherman Antitrust Act. So uh, very much uh, a conservative. He was also claimed to be a copperhead during the war. So you could say that in this case, you know, Fuller is a conservative, and so people would say, well, he's just a conservative, just a racist. Now, let's get into this Wong Kim Ark, though, because this is important. Both Fuller and Harlan dissented, and they cited international law in this particular case. Now, their argument is interesting because the the idea is that the United States and having birthright citizenship carried over the British tradition of birthright citizenship. In fact, um, it's called uh, jus soli, which is, you know, your birthplace is how you, in your in are born, this was English common law. But what the dissenters say is that that English common law doesn't, doesn't apply to the United States anymore because when the United States declared its independence, the English common law doctrine evaporated. Now, this is true and not true. I think that you could say the ancient constitutions, the ancient rights of Englishmen, these are things that the the founding generation were insistent on hanging on to, but when you have a written constitution, you are breaking from the common law tradition because you now have a written constitution. These are two different things. And as as I've explained, it's two different games on two different fields. Um, Common law and written constitutions are different. And so I think they're correct in this. And they argue that you get your citizenship from your father's citizenship. Okay, this is very important. So your citizenship comes from your father, not from where you're, you're, you're birthed. And if that's the case, then Ted Cruz is not a citizen of the United States. Um and so the dissenters pointed to the Civil Rights Act. They pointed the language of that. They understood that they said this this Civil Rights Act and the amendment um, were important because they said that if you weren't subject to a foreign power, to any foreign power, you were a citizen if you were born here. But in this case, the Chinese, because they cannot renounce their citizenship to China, they're still subject to a foreign power. And if you don't decide to renounce your citizenship of where you're from, you're still subject to a foreign power. So, it's not tortured logic, it's, it's using the perfectly using the logic of birthright citizenship versus um, the fact you get your citizenship from your father. This is the way it had always been done. International law recognized that. And the argument against that, of course, is well, the United States as a sovereign can do what it wants. It can it can break international law, it can side with it, can, it creates its, it's sovereign, so it can create its own law. Um But I think the dissent here is interesting because uh you know Harlan and Fuller were pointing something out that, hey, uh, you know, the law has always been you get your citizenship from your father, not just from where you're born, and the United States was breaking tradition because these people are all British subjects and they're saying we're not anymore. We're not that. We're something else. We're a whole new country. Um, so I think that subject to the jurisdiction is still open to debate. The Supreme Court has said what it meant. The The people that wrote it said what it meant. The dissent in Juan K. Mark said what it meant. And you, have, of course, have Brennan in nineteen in the 1950s saying, in, a, in a footnote, essentially, saying birthright citizenship, and everyone cites that. Uh, but uh I think that the fact is that subject to the jurisdiction thereof is clearly intended to mean that if you are still a foreign national in any way, then your children are not citizens of the United States. So this is an important it's an important difference it's an it's important to understand that when you look at this particular issue. and last but not least, and i'm I'm going long on this episode, so I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly and i and I discussed this. In more detail, in my American Constitutions classes, the whole idea of is the Fourteenth Amendment even legally ratified? And I would argue, no, it wasn't. And of course, this was a people made a lot of uh, hay out of this back in the 1950s. But Forrest McDonald wrote a wonderful article on it, a, a historical perspective on it, where it wasn't tainted by politics, and uh, that's been republished at the Abbeville Institute. Um, but let's go over there and look at look, do a search for Fourteenth Amendment, and you'll come up with his article on it. Um, but he argues that the Fourteenth Amendment was not legally ratified because three states rescinded their ratification. After it became and, and first of all, how does a state that's not a state ratify an amendment? That was always the catch with the Fourteenth. You're asking a state that you've said you've kicked out of the union, but you have to. It's not a state; it's a territory or conquered province. But you have to ratify an amendment to become a state. You can't do that, and so that's why three states clearly rescinded their ratification, saying the Congress is abusing its power. So, in my opinion, the Fourteenth Amendment was never even legally ratified to begin with. But that's that's an argument that you're never going to win. You're not going to say, well, I mean, the Fourteenth Amendment never never legally ratified. We're not going to have to follow it. The important argument to make is this: subject to the jurisdiction thereof. It's not tortured. It's going back and looking at what the what the people that wrote the amendment said it meant, and then you can look at a couple of Supreme Court cases. Two, one is a dissent, one is a majority opinion where well, they did define that. They clearly defined it, and so the Supreme Court has ruled on this against what the progressives say it means. So it still is open for interpretation, and I think um, that that's the key to understanding the 14th and understanding this idea of birthright citizenship. There's no birthright citizenship in the Constitution, and I think that it clearly is Is if you go back and look at original intent and you look at, say, the slaughterhouse cases, it's not there. And those that are saying it is don't understand what they're talking about. Um, so that's my two cents on the 14th Amendment. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show, and I'll see you next time.